we're here uh, towards the end of Sean Gladwell's uh, double side show. It closes on Saturday, but still is open on Saturday. Some people feel we shouldn't have been open uh, on Anzac Day. You can't please everybody, is all I can say. This show is about war. It is about um, service uh, in perhaps an ambiguous way to one's country. It is about flight and it does relate to Anzacs and also we wanted to finish the show on a Saturday. So for those of you who are concerned about Saturday, us being open, um, you know, uh, really one... I feel very comfortable with it and I hope uh, you'll tell people to come because it will be the last opportunity for both venues. Um, I, uh, I wanted to just give you a little framework for these um, talks generally. Uh, SCAF, the foundation, uh, operates... Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. Um, four, we do three to four major projects a year. It's funded by the Sherman family. We have a wonderful group of um, patron circle supporters, uh, 15 of them, which is the cap we don't take anymore, not because we don't want people, but because we want to look after them in a very special way, and we don't have the staff resources to look after hundreds of people or even, uh, you know, to, I don't know, to a couple of dozen people. So SCAF is largely funded by the family with some wonderful help. The Nelson Mears Foundation helps us by half-funding the Culture and Ideas uh, series, of which group this is one. And I'd say we do probably at least one a week, sometimes two a week. Um, it's quite an active program. We deliberately keep it small. The room holds 60 people, which I think is what we've got tonight. We have been known to fit in 70, and I suspect we're somewhere between 60 and 70 this evening. So this is our maximum, and we prefer to keep it that way. So we keep it focused on specific things, Asia-Pacific um, <clears throat> and Australia, which of course fits within that framework, a small groups, a small patron circle group, um, one sponsor that helps us with the culture and ideas for which we're enormously grateful. And uh, before I start off, I'm going to hardly do any talking after this. I'm going to simply... Uh, prompt Kit, uh, Dr. Kit Misha Muir on my right, who is the writer and author of this amazingly good, and I say this with all sincerity, I never have a book launch or a um, any event here where I haven't thoroughly investigated the material, and in a book launch that means you have to read the book, so that's what I've done. <laughs> you know, some people read the beginning and the end, and they, uh, yeah, I don't. I read the whole thing, and I can tell you it's absolutely worth uh, reading. It is a very serious study of um, art and war and of Sean's place uh, within that spectrum. Sean Gladwell, the man of the moment, the sort of hero of Australian art, is on my left. And uh, sitting uh, in the second row, just one behind this row on my right, is Simon Mordant, who has who will launch the book once this conversation is over, who's off to Venice tomorrow, I think we can safely say that Simon has probably made the greatest contribution to Australian visual cultural life of anybody uh, in the last 
I don't know, 50 years or something. Because without Simon, the MCA would have founded. There was, you know, a great need for that second uh, wing, which doubled the space. And without Simon, I cannot see how the Venice Biennale Australian Pavilion could have uh, got going uh, in a second incarnation. I mean, everybody tried and nobody took it on uh, the way Simon did. And uh, Simon is not someone who likes failure. None of us do. But he definitely uh, aims for success and he is deliberate and dogged and persevering to the point where there's no escape. So uh, he's got it done. I haven't seen it. I'll be at the Biennale in September, but uh, a number of you are going, and I think it is a great moment for Australia. So I think before we start, we say we applaud Kit, Sean, whose double show is here, Kit, whose book, uh, Simon, who has uh, funded this book, and Brian, who funds the whole of SCAF. <laughs> and there are a few members of our patron circle here. Uh, the Jameses are here. I see. I don't really see anybody else, but uh, they are regular um, visitors to the gallery. And to Sam Mears, who's not here today, I'm having lunch with her tomorrow. And to uh, our patron circle, thank you so much. Now, I'm not going to introduce in the formal way. What I'm going to do is start off with a question to Kit, saying how did he come to write this book and what, what was the sort of point de départ? How did you come to Sean's work, Kit, and how did you come to think of writing a full publication, which is a big commitment? This is ancient history. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Um, okay. Well, going way, way back, uh, Sean and I were at Sydney College of the Arts together. Uh, he was in the year just uh, behind me. And uh, when I remember uh, when Sean was doing his um, honours paper, uh, Sean asked me to read over that. And then very first show that he had, which was in... Well, first solo show that he had, which was in Art Space in 2000, yep. you asked me to do the catalogue essay. Oh. Yeah. So I've done, the catalog, I've done several catalogue essays over the years, and then back in 2009, this makes it sound like a real hiddenness, I suppose, Sean was having a party in his studio. And <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> He's the only one. <laughs> I to mention, it was a, it was, it, I've got to say, it was a much more luxurious studio in Sydney than he has in London, the one which was, has no heating. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, and he happened to mention that he'd just been chosen. Uh, Warwick is in the back. Uh, he'd just been chosen by the Australian War Memorial to be the next official war artist. Um, which I just looked at that opportunity straight away, and I thought, fantastic! I, I, I had wanted to write a book about Sean's work. I think the first time we mentioned it was about 2005, uh, and this was now 2009. So I saw that as being a fantastic opportunity. I'm an academic, so I had to then seek uh, ethics approval to interview Sean, which took three months, in which time Sean <laughs> had the much more difficult task of going to Afghanistan and the Middle East. And then uh, throughout 2010, we, we did lots and lots of interviews. Uh, I think we did about six hours of interviews, and um, I had a research assistant who 
had to sit through those and transcribe them in between me and John eating olives. <laughs> <laughs> Another party. And this was also around about the time that uh, Sean was also moving to London. Mm-hmm. Uh, Should I put a date on there? That, that was <clears throat> mid-2010? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So uh, I then uh, I got a sabbatical during 2011 from the University of Newcastle, uh, which helped me write this book. So I um, I did a lot of travel uh, uh, to visit Sean, and um, it was an incredible moment as well within the story that I was writing because it was also the right in the midst of this was when uh, Osama bin Laden was was killed by the U.S. Navy mm-hmm. SEALs. So that was, you know, one of these kind of pivotal moments that mm-hmm. happened during the research. Mm-hmm. But um, it was one of those things where the, the research actually kind of unfolded as I was writing on it. And also Sean continued, you've continued actually making work on the Still thing. at it, still at it, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. well, I think that, I mean, that's a comprehensive answer. It's really a, a 15-year project when you think about yeah. it, you know. Uh, and often when people used to say to me in the selling days... Um, when I had the commercial gallery, uh, how long did the artists take to do that? You know, the answer is a lifetime, really, because you don't just come to something, it it percolates. Sean, from your point of view, (coughs) you've had a lot written about you and Kit's written a lot about you. Uh, Do you see yourself in this book? Does it feel like, uh, you know, you? It's hard when you stand back and somebody speaking about you, um, you need to feel connected to the persona that has been created on the page, no? Yeah, yeah, that's a complex um, question. I, I'm not sure if I can really mount a clear answer because it's a big one. I think, like, definitely I can see where Kit's research drew upon specific interviews, mm-hmm. for sure. I can, mm. when, I, when I read the book, uh, I could sort of see, oh, that material came from that moment. One one was a great uh, moment where we were in Hyde Park, Green Park, Hyde Park. It's Hyde Park, Park, yeah, London. And yeah. We, we, we started the interview and we kept going and the sun faded and it was in winter so that happened pretty quickly in London. <laughs> and we were still talking with each other in darkness. Mm. And uh, But I, I remember the material from that interview clearly. and, and mm. So those kind of moments, mm. I think, stayed with me and I, were, I was catching them in the book. But also, uh, because because Kit has his own theoretical framework, and uh. he he was also researching my work in relation to uh, visual culture connected to these wars in I general. I know that's what's um, the interest of the book is yeah, really. I yeah. think yeah. So yes. it's really he, his research, and I just happen to um, feature in parts of it. I That's think you I featured think. in more than parts. But <laughs> now that you've uh, moved us towards the sort of um, meta uh, story behind the book or above the book, it's really about uh, photography uh, and war, isn't it, Kit? I mean, it's about how wars have changed, how wars uh, are <coughs> conveyed to us, the viewers who are not there, 
and uh, what sort of a role the technical side plays in, in that process. Kit, go through, I remember uh, something that struck mm. me in the book very forcefully. When wars were fought, and you went through, and it's the first time I've thought of it, Australia in the First World War, which we're se- you know, celebrating or memorialising now with Anzac Day, uh, <coughs> the Vietnam War, uh, the Second World... Well, the Second World War, the Vietnam mm. War, and now Iraq and Afghanistan. How... Describe to the audience, in a, in a way that you did in the book, which was I found very insightful, how people received the images mm. of war before as opposed to now. Okay. <laughs> uh, one of the things that uh, I, I trace the, the history of, uh, particularly the still and then the moving image, um, first looking at, uh, at photographers like Alexander Gardner, who was um, documenting the, the American Civil War, uh, through to then the early pate uh, and Gaumont reels that were um, being produced during the, the First World War. And I was thinking about how when someone like Gardner was taking pictures of the battlefields on the, uh, in the American Civil War, how the, 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 film, still, the film speed rather, was so slow that there really wasn't any action. So you had lots of, you know, you had lots of dead bodies, obviously, but also cannonballs and that kind of thing. When Pate started to produce uh, their, their moving images, the equipment that they had was like these 25-kilogram massive cameras. There was a supply chain that was a physical supply chain that meant that the, the film had to be developed. That film then had to be copied, you know, transported. So the supply chain really between uh, the filming and these, this appearing on screens um, throughout Europe... Was, was really about uh, about five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. Now, the Vietnam War, people always say that the Vietnam War was the, the, the first televised war, and one of, the, one of the images that I talk about in there was the, the summary execution by, by Colonel Lone, which was, uh, it made the front page of the New York Times, mm-hmm. and it was, I think, also filmed by uh, CBS at the time. Had a massive uh, impact on American politics um, back in 1968. But we, the really fascinating thing, however, and this is why I think having Sean as an official war artist, and again, I think the AWM in choosing him was an incredibly bold move, but an incredibly wise one, I think, was that we now live in a time where those images of the battlefield can be taken, you know... Um, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can take a picture mm. of you guys. <laughs> uh, there you go. And then I can post that up on, you know, Facebook or something like that. And immediately it's the, the, that distribution chain that used to take weeks is now down to seconds and it's infinitely digitally reproducible. Mm-hmm. Now, this thing can, the can uh, record, you know, probably about 24 hours worth of, uh, of video. Thousands and thousands yeah. of still images. Mm. That changes... That fundamental paradigm shift, I think, changes how images are produced. And the war that we're talking about, which, you know, the, the one that's been dubbed as the war on terror and it's no longer called that, uh, really was the war that, that instantaneous supply chain and that degree of distribution really played a significant part. So when Sean went into that particular theatre of war to make work, 
Um, those resonances, I think, are automatically there. Yeah. Mm, I think that's a very interesting. You wouldn't really be thinking of six weeks down to six seconds mm. or two seconds, but that's the reality. Sean, when you were commissioned by the War Memorial, <coughs> what, uh, what sort of um, advice did they give you? What did they require from you? What did they... Um, were there parameters? Was there a framework? That doesn't come out in the book, so I'm genuinely asking this. Yeah, yeah, it's probably more of a like a, a technical issue with contracts, and there, but there was like a kind of mandate. There was mm. like a sort of uh, charter in a sense that, mm-hmm. um, and I think, and actually w- one of the War Memorial curators is here. He could answer this mm. uh, better than I could, mm. but but my understanding was that that well, ask yeah, him afterwards. Yeah, there was there was a, yeah, because I forget I didn't do my homework. I, I knew that I had to. Um, I, I remember that it, there was some there was a, a clause in it that said that you, you you're really asked to record life in all forms in that theatre of war. Mm-hmm. The Australian troops and um, other members that they're working with in ISAF, that I, I was um, really there to kind of record my, my personal uh, vision or understanding mm-hmm. of what was taking place. And how place. did you come to that then, given that you perhaps didn't do your homework, dot your I's and cross your T's? Yeah. There you were, uh, arriving in Afghanistan, say, and there was the camp. And yeah. the soldiers, and then yeah, I mean, I think I think I had to take a pretty critical stance on it because I I sort of saw the contract, but then I thought, okay, I really have to question, firstly, why I'm here because I'm not a photojournalist. No. I mean, I'm I'm okay with a camera, um, but I re- soon realised that a lot of the soldiers that I was meeting were actually better at using technology than I was. Mm. And so, uh, I mean, you know, because this is this warfare and technology are, are really going hand in hand, mm. always has, but now when you're dealing with digital um, photography, um, I was seeing their aptitude towards the technology as being something that I should really use. Mm. Or rather, I should be handing my cameras to them and letting them uh, use it, and I would be more of a director. So, so, mm. so I think... Maybe my observations of what were what were um, what was taking place instantly started to give me ideas and uh, really form the nature of the work that I did over there. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. sort of as you went along, yeah. and taking the images. I don't know how many of, of you have seen it, but the soldiers, one of whom has got a blonde plait, so obviously a woman from the back. Uh, all of them are shown at uh, UNSW Art and Design. Was that a security? This is a genuine question as well. Was that a security issue or was that an artistic decision? Uh, it was a bit of both, actually. A bit of both. Yeah, because mm. um, obviously some personnel over there, their identities are protected mm. because they're working in a field where they really can't have um, themselves shown. No. And so, and, but, but also for me, I was interested in maybe working around different ideas of portraiture. Mm. That say, and Kit does mention this in the book yeah. that that um, maybe for me to have like say a profile or frontal portrait, um, that's something that has been done before very well, yeah. and I'm not sure if I could um, add to that conversation mm. around portraiture. So I have this interest in, and this has happened for a while, well before I got to Afghanistan, of looking at how people. Uh, observe space and that maybe there could be a double looking, a kind of looking at them looking. And, uh, and it comes from references, of course a very famous one is Caspar David Friedrich's Wander Above the Sea of Fog from 1818. And a lot of artists 
I'm not the only one chasing that reference. That's a very popular um, uh, sort of artwork because it's the first time I noticed even as a student that I was looking at someone looking. Mm-hmm. And so really that was kind of the thinking behind that, that series but of But if you portraits. look at the book... Um Double War, uh, that is the title. So, Kit, how did you come to that title? It's called Double War, uh, Sean Gladwell, Visual visual Culture and the Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Here's the book itself. It seemed, I remember at the time, and the, the title actually seemed to appear fairly early. I remember the time, not the full title, mm-hmm. but the Double War part. Um, that seemed almost to be the most obvious uh, title because if any of you guys are familiar with um, Sean's work, doubling appears through a, a lot of Sean's work. Um, not only the fact that there's two screens, um, split screens in a lot of his work, but um, also that, uh, for instance, um, you know, if you've been to the UNSW Art and Design Gallery and you've seen those uh, three images of Sean and his brother uh, sitting with the USS Enterprise on the on the table there. That um, Sean's brother actually, you know, appears in uh, in a few of his works that you you may not know really, but there's some. If you spend enough time looking at these images, there's some visual cues you can actually tell. You know, this is Sean, this is his brother. So the doubling um, seemed to be a very natural uh, thing that occurs in Sean's work. Uh, also, Sean had an exhibition which was at the Australian Centre for Moving Images in. Melbourne, which was called Stereo Sequences, and uh, that was, you know, as the title suggests, that was, by and large, uh, these double-screened um, works filmed in various, you know, situations. So it tied in very well, I think, with the idea of Iraq and Afghanistan being these double wars that made up the, you know, the, the war on terror. So this is the doubling of the two wars. And in you fact, know, if you, that's uh, double yeah. as in two. If you flick over to the back, see, this is, the, this is actually the recording of uh, the double field work that yeah. is, in fact, it's... The best way is to mount the yeah. book on the wall. You've <laughs> <laughs> done that before. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and that's in the show, that's in isn't the show, it? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But so read it first. Doubling is a... <laughs> Is a huge uh, theme. Bob, Dr. Barbara Poller and Professor Paul Arden, Sean and I had lunch together today, and we were talking about for the show, bringing in, not the show here, but the show at UNSW, Art and Design, bringing in, um, you know, two outside people, people from France, one from France, one from Switzerland. And to what extent that, in fact, added to our understanding of Sean's work. Here are two people from Europe, you know, far away, looking at it. At the one level, you can look, read their essays, and Patricia and I had a, had a talk about that too some time ago, and thinking, well, what have they really added to the conversation? What, if anything? Uh, because Sean's work has been discussed and uh, dissected and everybody has peered at it and, uh, you know, uh, deconstructed it and so on. And what Sean and I decided, uh, at least I decided, and I think he nodded, was um, that, you know, even if... um, Barbara, for me, came up with two ideas, and I want Sean to comment publicly. One is an idea that had been mentioned before, and that is the romantic element in Sean's work, romantic as in the romantic movement, 
the sublime, and Kit refers to that as well, awe and terror and fear, that sort of thing. Mm. And the other thing is the doubling. Now, you know, Sean, to what extent do you feel that, uh, and, I, you know, we discussed this, but I'd like uh, you to share this with the audience, that having two outside curators in a way enhanced the conversation. You said you couldn't add to the portraiture conversation at some level because so many people have done such good portraits. And here's Pat, who's uh, just joined the portrait gallery, and we know how important portraits are. But you can't keep presenting people frontally, gazing at the camera, or being painted like this forever. It just becomes boring. And so how do you get around that? So Mm. the first question is... You know, what did the outsiders add? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess... If I guess it's anything. Yeah, mm. I, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I felt like at one point as an art student, you, you really have to... Um, you're asked to think about your work. You know, you're asked to, like, mm. develop a kind of uh, understanding of your themes and then, you know, there's this concept of an exegesis that you have to write about your work. And so it's, there's a structure there, but then there's something... Um, sort of exciting and terrifying in equal measure when you're asking someone else to do that for you. Mm. And for me, it was Kit who did that for the first time actually at that, in that art space essay. That was an mm. extended essay, mm. which for me was uh, a thrill because I, I, I get another mind thinking about my work mm. uh, and really giving it attention, mm. um, not, not just a small uh, paragraph um, you know, to introduce a uh, work, but it becomes a major element of the show. Mm. So for Barbara and Paul, I think maybe because they have a Western European um, sensibility or um, their own understanding gets projected onto the work. Uh, that was that was a great thrill. And but what did they add, Sean? I think I think maybe because um, Barbara, um, because of her particular understanding of romanticism, they've already moved through that. And she's in Switzerland, where major players within that kind of movement were living. Mm. Um, Rousseau she, went, uh, yeah, no. of course, of yeah, course. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, even to the point where she's literally living in the Alps, which is such mm. a major um, mm. sort of subject mm. matter for um, um, German and Swiss Romanticism. I, I think she just she she was living with the stuff that I was referring to, mm. and that alone would give her a different. That's perspective. a very wonderful way of putting yeah. it, in a way. And Paul, um, I think because. Um, Paul, he's always interested in sort of sub, subcultural activity, but he has a uh, European understanding where he would also, in a way, maybe look at my work uh, in a filmic way, or he has a distanced understanding of it through film. But as that's also my references as well. So we we meet through um, the love of different mediums, but but also it's kind of um, there's something terrifying as an artist reading. Uh, work that's extended about your work because it's this debate about the artist's intention versus everyone else's um, interpretation. Mm. And so for me, even to talk about my work now, I'm up here with Kit and he's become like a world authority on my work. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> like, I better get it right. You know, because, um, I'll be sitting here going... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and so it's also... And, and so I, I guess with the Lacrima Chair project... Um, Barbara and Paul become experts. Their own, they just have their own understanding of that mm. work. And it, um, it was a thrill to know that many times those um, 
those understandings connected to my Yeah. Intention. You know, I don't know how many people here have had an academic background, but, you know, there was always the discussion in academic circles about authorial will and then public reception. So what does the author want? What is the author being the writer or the uh, artist? And then what is the public? What do the viewers bring to it? And, of course, they're not always the same. The author might want X and the public overall sees Y. And you can't control that. So uh, you do have to, it's like a baby who grows into a teenager, into an adult. You let that baby go into the world. And then you, you know, like all our mm. children, you, you're not uh, responsible anymore. In a certain way you mm. are because you're there at the beginning. But in another way they behave, uh, they take on their own persona in the world and this is the same with an artwork. Mm. I want to bring um, back the discussion for a moment to the in-between spaces and the quiet moments that uh, Kit refers to in the book. Um, you know, you can go into, both Kit and Sean have mentioned the theatre of war. Now, I don't know mm. what theatre means to you, but to me it means something dramatic, something staged, something um, probably kind of intense for two hours and then you go home to your quiet meal afterwards or whatever. Um, it is a kind of theatre, isn't it, in a funny kind of way, from a particular perspective. But Sean doesn't, uh, and Kit is very clear about this, and I think everybody agrees, uh, Carolyn Christoph Barkardjev, who's one of the great critic, uh, critics and curators, I think, of mm. our day, yep. that Sean is not about the kind of dramatic, explosive moments, and war allows a lot of those moments. I mean, in a way, you know, the bombing, the Hiroshima, the mushroom, the, I don't know, the victims. So talk a little bit about how you approached uh, war, and then we'll ask Kit uh, his uh, opinion on that, Sean. Those sort of quieter spaces that you captured somehow, not the high drama people, one person like that, uh, yeah. New York Times image, mm, yeah. yeah, where yeah. a gun is at somebody's head, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, in a way, like I'd already been, whoa, I just lost my microphone, it was <laughs> dramatic, um, I, I, I was always... Not as traumatic as war. No, that's right. No. I think um, because I was interested in, say, how athletes were moving or the things that I was involved in, like skateboarding or surfing or whatever, I would see that stuff uh, projected or, you know, in, through TV in that dramatic way. Mm. Um, and also I was, like every other kid, I saw so many war-based Hollywood films and I saw the explosions and the high drama. And But for me, um, already before I get to the Afghanistan experience, I'm already trying to work out um, these other moments that for me are, are very important. What happens, say five minutes before the Olympic athlete gets mm. onto the track? How do mm. they psych themselves up to that mm. moment? And what are the things that we don't get to see through sports broadcasting? Mm. And th those moments of preparation when someone finds themselves having to reach in and make an extraordinary effort, how do you represent that? That was a, a problem that I had as an art student. Mm. And I took those concerns in, into the Afghanistan uh, experience I was interested in um, rehearsals or moments where people are, are knowing that they're going into great danger, but they, they have to find some space or they're involved in a meditation. Um, 
and a, and a kind of search. And, and that, that, that became a problem for me because I wasn't sure how to represent that at all. Well, you did it very well. And I think the, the soldiers with their backs to the camera and, you know, they had all these uniforms on that didn't look very strict to me. Yeah. They looked messy. Yeah. You think you'd all have to be in the same, you know, yeah. and everyone was in a muddle. Yeah. That one had yeah. a plait and the other had a hat and somebody yeah. had, had personal yeah. badges. Yeah. Is that allowed? Yeah, yeah. Some? Actually, I guess a, a lot of the, um, <laughs> I guess rules, because we're talking about the military, so yes. it's f- full of rules and regulations, um, a lot of that had changed since, say, um, say the Second World War in Maybe in Vietnam and beyond, there was this kind of customization mm. of stuff. And you know, for me, that's fascinating because yeah. I'm interested in subcultures. So for mm. me, I just launched straight into mm. what does all of that mean? Yeah. So what are these badges? Are, yeah. What are they saying? That mm. the the language around the badges was um, fascinating for me because mm. it is like another language. But also, mm. I I think I was shocked when I met members from the special forces uh, in Australia, the the guys who are really and the women also um, who are in bases and serving at the front line. Um, but more so the special forces units, they they didn't have this kind of clean shaven GI look that mm-hmm. came from the Second War, Second World War. Um, what they would do is they would be allowed to grow beards. Mm. They're, they're um, in a Muslim country. Um, males wear beards out of respect. Mm. And they would they would meet those expectations of what a man would look like mm. instead I of in, yeah, instead of walking through a village and offending everyone by being clean, clean shaven. shaven. Um, mm. And so there was a reason for for a mm-hmm. lot of uh, like a, 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 a practical. A reason. practical reason to blend yeah. in a little, not to sort of confront people yeah, before yeah. you've even started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in one sense, it's a form of camouflage, but in another sense, it's it's almost like um, being sympathetic to the the cultural practices. Mm. But for me, I mean, I, I walk into a military base and I see all of these bush rangers. Yes. That's how I read it. These guys with full beards who look very fit and menacing. I was like, wow, I'm, uh, I've arrived in this very... You know, so, yeah, I had a different reading, Are these I guess. friends or enemies, you might have said? Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they, they were very friendly to me uh, when I said hi, but to look at them, I mean, that was, yeah, it was yeah, definitely that imposing look. And Kit, how do you see the, uh, the personal camera in war? You know, the fact that we can go in... Uh, we all know those images from the American side, the detention centres and so on. I mean, us, Brian and I saw a programme on TV the other night where the um, police are accused of overreacting to an African-American who has, uh, I don't know, either behaved badly or not, it's difficult to judge, and the response to that, which I think is very sensible, is to put body cameras on mm. them so that nobody can argue afterwards. Was it excessive? Was it racist? Or was it necessary in order to protect themselves? So this yeah. is a very new phenomenon, isn't it, Kid? Yeah, I was, I was just thinking about this recently because um, uh, I've just come back from L.A. Well, where I've been doing some research with an artist over there. And a lot of her work is about disasters. And she was talking to me about the LA riots. Mm. And I was thinking about uh, the LA riots, which I think was 1992, and how that was sparked off by the the video of the Rodney King beating, mm-hmm. which just that. happened mm. to be... Someone was there with a the video camera mm. recording that at the time. That may not have... You know, the whole... 
uh, event may not have happened if somebody hadn't have been there mm. recording it. But also, um, you know, the, I suppose there's a certain speed that uh, that then that event unfolded at. It was again, it was a, a televised disaster. Mm. I remember um, it. The police beat him yeah, yeah. as he was down. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the the interesting thing, and I think the problematic thing, and this is one of. Uh, in the first chapter of the book that I talk about is that images images are volatile, they're fugitive, they will they're, they're incredibly powerful, but it's also for that reason that um, they can also be manipulated, that a video is never a video is never a neutral thing. A video no. is always a vessel for, for ideology. Yes. And um, Susan Sontag argues essentially it is the the, the discourse that goes around, I mean, she talks specifically about the text, but it's the discourse that surrounds an image that will determine essentially what its, what its affect is. Because mm. when we're dealing with photography particularly, well, photographic, still unmoving images, um, we're dealing with issues to do with affect and emotion. Mm. Um, and that is something to uh, someone like Roland Barton, Sontag's generation was something that meant photography had to be dealt with with a great deal of suspicion. You mm. really, really couldn't trust photography. Uh, it, there's been, you know, it's referred to as the affective turn in the last uh, the 10 or 15. The affective? Turn. Yeah. Turn. T-U-R-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the affective turn essentially is a point at which academics, and, you know, we've had some very significant academics uh, here, you know, uh, Jill Bennett, um, mm. just a cofer is... You know, has written about this, mm. yeah. um, where that affective, emotional power that an image has mm. is something that is now really closely considered um, mm-hmm. as being part of. You know, it is acknowledged as being kind of fugitive and as being volatile, mm. but that means that we can't just then dismiss images. Look how it's also it's also suspect. powerful they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's suspect. Absolutely. Do we know whether to believe it? And particularly, Sean, in this day where you can adjust images, do people believe what they see? Mm, I mean, I mean, I think um, uh, it's it's a case to case basis. So, mm. especially over there in in um, say in Afghanistan, I was very aware that you're being. I was photographing, but I was also being photographed. Mm. I was recording, but I was being um, mm. recorded. Bit by drones overhead that could read my watch, but I, I thought I was isolated with a group of people in the desert. But we were mm. we were seriously monitored. Mm. But you know, mm. of course, that's a strange feeling. Mm. Um, to th- so of course I was treading with suspicion about what was being seen. That mm. this space was in- in- incredibly visible to mm. um, agents that I didn't know where or um, what they were, what their agendas yeah, were. Yeah, even. and mm. and that that kind of inspired a lot of the projects that I did. Mm. You know, I mean, everything from asking soldiers to record themselves and then near a, a drone capture site where the drones would come to, mm. uh, maybe me observing soldiers who didn't know that they were being photographed. Some mm-hmm. A series of works was when I was um, taking photos of soldiers whilst they were, they were asleep and um, I, I would let them wake up and then I'd go over to them and let them know that I'd photograph them and they'd say, that is a terrible photo. 
And nostril cavities, <laughs> forget about it. Or I, I, and then I would start to employ tricks like saying, oh, look at this great photo I took of you. So I already loaded up the terrible like, tricks. Photojournalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Photo, tri tricks of a photojournalist. You know, I started, yeah. I started to learn through these other people I was uh, spending time with. But um, that idea that they didn't know when I was taking photographs, I didn't know when I was being recorded. So the mm. whole space was. Um, uh, suspicious in that sense. Yeah, it was under scrutiny. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've got uh, just two or three more questions because I want the audience to be involved as well. Uh, you and Kit have had plenty of time to uh, converse and I with you as well. I wanted you to talk, Sean, a little bit about previous people who've gone into war zones, both in Australia and also uh, people like Basquiat and Steve McQueen and even Edward Marbridge, uh, the romantic painters, I think you've referred to. How, uh, what, you know, everybody stands on the shoulders of someone else. There's nobody who invent. I mean, Einstein came up with a new idea, and I suppose Galileo and various other people, one can say, came up with something completely new that nobody had thought of. But most people build on something. So what, mm. what was in your past? What, what, did, what do you think, you know, led you yeah. to, to yeah. this moment? Yeah, I, I think um, just th that it wouldn't just be necessarily art historical influences. No. Mm. Uh, no. Like, like, say, I'm interested in um, th pretty much all of the names that you've just mentioned, mm. actually, because they're a part of a canon, mm. uh, including like, other people like um, Don, Don McCullen, who was an incredible... Uh, mm. Um, you know, we have we have this kind of magnum photography that takes place in war, and then mm. there was um, the painters, of course. But I think also I can't deny the power of Hollywood, even if I'm trying to kick against that aesthetic. Mm. That becomes an, an influence or mm. coordinate. A counter-influence um, in a Yeah, way. yeah. Mm. And, and then there's also the other um, influences, like the the power that my father's snapshots mm. in Vietnam had on me. And he, my dad is here tonight, actually. Hi, Dad. <laughs> Um, uh, um, yeah. Um, I think because when I was a child I would look through this biscuit tin of these photographs and later my father explained to me that that was the first time he'd been outside of Australia and he's in a war zone uh, mm. you know, and witnessing atrocity and being in that environment which would be extremely uh, I can't even imagine no. um, but then also having for the first time your own camera like a box brownie mm. and then the schizophrenic logic of being a tourist in an exotic land when mm. there isn't that heightened um, sort of the, the, the drama that we mm. were talking about the, mm. and it, you were talking about boredom or downtime mm. before but then you kind of think well also maybe the psychology shifts from the soldier to the tourist and how is that recorded and I saw some photos of my father's um, where the war had been framed out and there were village scenes and life taking place in southern Afghanistan and they were extremely powerful mm. so I think they're, they're you know, obviously big influences there's so many influences so yeah. sometimes you can't separate them really yeah. Yeah. Um, what I thought uh, this was the thing that struck me most in the book uh, Kit and I have to say shocked me most mm. I was so profoundly shocked by this that I um, I told my our grandchildren Brian's here who are 9, 7 and I didn't tell the 5 year old I think that would have been a bit much but, I, but certainly uh, the 7 year old who's the one that I can all three boys uh, that I can have most um, um, 
kind of, uh, you know, conceptual conversations with, I, I described this to him. The kids are all focused on the internet, right? And all on the screen, screen time, screen time, and it has to be monitored. And I read in your book that, um, that these war games that are sold to millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of Americans and people around the world mm. are actually simulating the, um, the mechanics, the theatre of war that we were talking about earlier. And that it, they are used, and I want you to comment much more fulsomely than I'm able to do, but they are used both as recruitment devices, so to persuade young people to come into war, and then, this is the part that shocks me profoundly, that they are used then as... Here are the video games you so enjoy. Come and join the army and play video games, but except that's real. That's re those are real people. So that these kids who are really kids, they're 18, 19-year-old boys, are transported from a completely fantasy game into the real theatre of war with charred flesh, with smells, with children, with... Um, Kit, you, you better say it, because okay. I get um, very upset. Well, I think the interesting... I mean, OK, uh, a, a few years ago I was addicted to a game called Quake, uh, <laughs> which shows how old I am, actually. Uh, it was all hexagonal and, you know... Anyway, um, but also um, when I remember, uh, you know, we'd go around to... Uh, I'd go around to Sean's studio. Uh, what was the game that had just come out? Uh, modern Warfare yeah. version 2 oh, Modern Warfare 2 yeah. can you imagine so, so these things they're, they're, they're first person shooters they're, and, you know they are incredible they're incredibly addictive to play mm. the interesting thing uh, that I found in researching this was that there's also there's a game that's called uh, the US Army that is actually funded by the US Army and the servers mm. are run by the US Army and it is all about the the logistics of being able to use the, the equipment. So there is a level, there's a fetishistic kind of level of interest in using the equipment. So that if you, you know, I, for instance, years, years ago I used a flight simulator when I was learning to fly, and then you'd, you'd sit in a plane and it would be exactly like you practiced. And, you know, what the, the, that game is essentially doing is going, okay, when, you're, when you are uh, confronted with, you know, um, this particular gun, you'll know exactly how to fuel strip it and, you know, put, you know, a new magazine in, that kind of stuff. So by the time that, you know, there's actually a recruitment function to that game. So by the time that, you know, the, the, the guys who've grown up on that game get into the, the field, they actually know how to use this equipment. Mm. Um, it, mm. It bypasses, to some extent, that in itself bypasses the ethical and moral issues. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but also what it does, uh, the, the equipment, and one of the, uh, two of the chapters, uh, the later chapters deal with the idea of the viewfinder, um, and uh, which obviously has, you know, enormous resonances with Sean's work. But the, uh, where, for instance, um, one of the pieces of footage that I re refer to in that last chapter is the... Uh, Apache helicopter footage that, that is often referred to as the collateral murder imagery uh, or video, uh, which is where, you know, the, uh, I think it's Apache helicopters circling 
Um, I think there's about 15 people in a, in a square. There's a couple of Reuters journalists in there. Which they this is on the, the screen. Yeah. Yes. This, and this was a video that was actually uh, yeah, leaked, leaked yeah. by uh, Brad, Bradley, now Chelsea, uh, mm. Manning. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, who's now serving a very long sentence for releasing the video. Um, and when you see this video, this is essentially what the person who is firing that weapon is looking at too. Is this very high definition, uh, sorry, not a very low definition, mm. high contrast black and white image with, you know, various kinds of things on the side that looks exactly like a computer game. And there are computer games that look exactly like that. Mm. So the, the distance, um, the, the, the phrase that I remember Sean said in one of the interviews, which kept coming back to me, was the gap then that is between the doer and the deed. Mm. So that mm. there, there is a dis, there is a human disconnection. Totally. Yeah, uh, that happens. You just press technology. a button and block. Yeah, mm. yeah. But that person could be a child. I think. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think it was yes. in that case. There was yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Also, I think maybe with um, and and there's a great criticism of drone technology that the operator of a weaponized drone that can sort of you know wreak havoc and um, cause massive um, casualties and fatalities is operated by someone who doesn't have the, the physical consequences mm. of that. They, they are removed. Sometimes they're in um, back in the States and they've just got their Starbucks coffee next to the control panel and yet they're operating machinery that, that you know, we all know this now. But we then, know I, But then yeah. I, I feel like I, I have to think through that disconnect to, say, positive applications of the same technology, say, like, um, keyhole surgery that's um, being operated by a surgeon where they can't actually get into a particular part of the body, um, that is essentially the same kind of mm. technology. It's mm. just, it just has a, you know, I mean, positive and negative is a tough thing to mm. sort of talk no, about here, like but that's, you know, we, we, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's a very complex issue already. Mm -hmm. we're, we're opening up a mm. can of worms here. I found mm. myself, that was absolute news to me. I was so shocked that video game playing and warfare were actually in a way equated the one with the other and that you could go from playing video games as a teenager straight into the US Army and keep playing video games except they're real people on the other side and you might not even kind of make that jump. And the development of yes. the technology overlaps. Yes. You know, the, yeah, yeah. That, there's actually a feedback between the development of weapons technology and gaming technology yeah, at the yeah. same time. Yeah. They feed back into each other. Well, we're almost at question time. I just wanted to um, share with you a book that I read, and not everyone reads French, I realise this, but this is uh, by a woman called Catherine Grenier, called La Manipulation des Images dans la Contemporaine. The title means The Manipulation of Images in Contemporary Art. And... Um, she wrote a book on um, Christian Boltanski recently, which I read, which was excellent. That's why I bought this. And uh, what she talks about is uh, the theatricalization. I'm taking my notes in French here, of war. And she cites Pierre Hugues, yep. which is quite a close-to-you yep. reference. Yep. And you can talk about that in the moment. And she also talks about the... Again, it's the French, but the banalisation de l'image, you know, how to turn the image, the image into something so banal that you don't realise the horror that it's actually referring to. And uh, she talks about um, 
I found this absolutely fascinating, this book. So I'm, I'm not specifically uh, recommending it, but what, what I, I thought, uh, Sean, just to finish <coughs> off, uh, that you and Kit might comment on, is if we're all photographers in a way, and you've you know, addressed that, at least perhaps you've addressed it fully, then what... Because we can all stand there and take images and we can all send the images to our people, you know, whoever following us. And we can all um, make a comment I'm on Instagram now, much to my astonishment, and I found that I'm just addicted to it. So if we can all do that, then in a sense, what is the artist's role in these high drama situations? What, what is it? Mm. What is the artist there to do? Not what the war memorial asked you to do, but what mm. what can you add to the... Con- you've added a huge amount to the conversation, and I am the first to acknowledge that, but it just... It, it's something she keeps bringing up again and again, how to how images are manipulated and mm. how they're manipulated in contemporary arts. It's very mm. cleverly written, this book. Yeah, I think I think it's again it's a case to case basis. Mm. Like I I, I um, feel like my work just basically presents more questions. There's mm. no resolve. It's no. not like I have closure on any of the no. projects that I did. Like for instance, um, uh, this issue about being removed from the image and your, this gap between the body and the image. Mm. I I set up an experiment where I asked these two soldiers to record themselves in this mm. desert field. Um, and it was a very simple experiment, and they were really nice enough to agree. Um, and they took it on with absolute kind of clarity and focus, as if it was a, 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 a drill, mm. uh, as if their life depended on it, really. Mm. And, um, and this is just an example um, mm. that um, I asked them to record each other. One person, one soldier moved, and the other person mimicked or you know responded as quickly as they could. And I could observe how how in tune how their bodies were calibrated with each Mm. other and because they're soldiers they're trained with this sort of idea of a quick response so Mm. um, it was very impressive for me but then as soon as I said um, why don't you guys try and look at each other not through your eyes but through the viewfinder only Mm. it became very difficult so for me I was just interested in in how that would affect the relationship between the two soldiers. Or, and how did it play out? Sean? Well, it becomes more difficult, more of course. Difficult, yeah. yeah, and also the the that little experiment became more difficult because one of the soldiers started to try and fool the other soldier fool into the, the, uh, the, yeah. So those little experiments for me, um, you know, they they might not seem like that much. I think just to describe it, I I would go away and think about what it is to try and see someone. Only through a camera, mm. or even the fact that I was, mm. I was, I was thinking that you know my role as an artist might not be to make every work, but to hand the cameras over because mm. the soldiers were effectively their best cinematographers, mm. and so th- these kinds of issues, I think, I, w- I was having to, to deal with um, every time I got out a camera mm. uh, over there, and I'm not, I'm not, I, I really f- feel like I've only just um, proposed more questions. Mm. Well, I think that is the role of the artist, isn't mm. it, at the end of the day? Yeah, Kit, what would you say to that? I mean... Well, definitely, I, I, I would agree that is, the, that is your role, and I think that one of the... I mean, I think you're right, on a case-by-case basis, I mean, you can look at a lot of the other artists, you know, if you compare something like, you know, we, we, Sean and I have talked about this before, 
um, that someone like Ben Quilty has done with mm, that particular model, something mm. entirely different. So it is something that is on a case-by-case basis. I think one of the things that Sean does, and this was the conclusion uh, that I come to in that book, is... Um, am I spoiling the end here? Uh, <laughs> uh, they, uh, is that essentially Sean turns down the volume that we're used to getting in mm. news reportage mm. of the That's field. a great way of putting mm. it, yeah. And, I mean, mm. in, for instance, the work that Sean's done on athletes and uh, sports people where, you know, taking that fast edit approach that we're used to from, uh, from the way in which sport is normally uh, reported and slowing that down, slowing it down so you can see the gesture and the movement, um, that's, you know, essentially... That process is repeated in very different ways, but with war. Mm. So what we get in this particular body of work is all of the noise is taken out. Mm. The volume is taken down. Mm. The idea of the, the, the hype and the hyperbole mm. that comes with the news mm. media is, is drained mm. out. And we get to look at the medium. And mm. I think that that in itself is a really valuable mm. thing that, some, that the news media can't And the stereotypes are taken out. To yeah, a certain yeah, extent, yeah. That, you know, the soldier who's saving the country yeah. and so on, which we're seeing a lot of with the Anzacs, and, you know, rightly so. But there's another way of looking at it, isn't there? Also, talk, Sean and I talked earlier about the Turkish perspective oh, yeah. on it. I mean, there were other people involved too, and they also lost people, not perhaps to the same extent, but you don't see that in the media. So that's really, I want to end on that, what the artist can bring, and I think for Sean Fulsomely has brought. So I hope you've enjoyed the conversation, and we're going to open it to question now, but let's thank Sean and uh, Kit. Now, Simon's going to launch the book in a moment, but we've got time for three or four questions. So please uh, go ahead. Here's a question, Rebecca. (laughs) And uh, say who you are as well. Thanks, Jean. I'm Liefen Bertels, the festival director for Sydney Festival. Um, I come originally from Flanders Fields. Ah. And one of the things that strikes me very often in the rhetoric around ANZAC and warfare in this country... Um, is that it's a very different approach um, and an approach that is often, I think, specific to countries that have been massively involved in warfare but not on their own turf. Mm, Or at least not in the way that the majority in this country would recognise, bar, of course, the claiming of the country. Um, The difference... From my perspective, mm. is that warfare is very physical even a hundred years after the First World War. I, I live around the corner from a number of battlefields, mm-hmm. and we still see the unearthing of war material on a weekly basis when mm-hmm. farmers plow fields around where my house is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. There are still grenades, bombs, shells coming up every week. It just says clung in the mm-hmm. plow, and then they sop and they put it on the side of the field and they get collected on a weekly basis. So 100 years after the war, it's still physical for us, but nobody in the Belgian military actually mm. gets, ever gets anything to say about it. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's been reclaimed, the whole history has been reclaimed by civilian society. I see. Mm. And I find it very striking that the two major nations, or groups of nations that have been very active in two world wars, mm. the United States and 
Australia mm. and New Zealand um, have both the courage but also the, the sort of mad idea of still sending artists to the mm. theatre of war mm. and make the artistic expression a military thing. How interesting. The Americans mm. still do this as well. I don't mm. think the French do it. I don't think mm. at this moment the... I think Australia must be one of the last remaining nations that actually sends artists. Mm. So my question is, do you think that you could have had a similar experience had you been a European artist trying to look at this particular mm -hmm. theatre of war? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's an impossible... I, I couldn't shift perspective because I'm just ensconced in my own history. You know, I can't really... But, yeah, maybe the fact that I would be in a familiar space analysing literally my backyard, I think that would shift everything. Mm. Where, I, you know, I'm really a stranger in a strange land over there and I, I have all of these mixed experiences when I'm in, say, Afghanistan uh, because I, I, I'm really like a tourist imposter... Um, affiliated with the military. I, I went through a whole range mm. of emotions. But I think if I was European looking at, say, the Western Front or key battlefields there, thinking that I had access to those sites from my house and maybe even having memories around those locations apart from the, the issue of war, that would change a lot, mm. of course. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wouldn't even be able to calculate what that would be. But, it, of course, yeah, it would be very powerful... Yeah. Um, but yeah. how interesting that those people are not analysing it in the way we are. Huh? Yes. I suppose my, my reply is just a, a, a fairly short one, which is um, when I've... Uh, before I was doing this research on Sean's work, I was doing research into the Holocaust, and that led me to... Uh, well, particularly the, the way which the Holocaust is interpreted in museums. And that led me to to go several, you know, to many places around Europe. And the one thing that really strikes you, for instance, if you go somewhere like, you know, Berlin, for instance, um, or, you know, you go to uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau camp, etc., um, the, the physical debris and presence of the war that is still there, mm. the scar on the landscape of mm. the Second World War is enormous. Mm. Um, and we have, we have these war memorials, for instance, the... I live in Newcastle. We have a cenotaph in the middle of town. It's a, you know, it's a kind of a block of marble, mm. and it doesn't really capture anything mm. of, you know, the the physical presence mm. that's always there of that wall. Mm. I think that's a very interesting thing. Mm. There's a show on coming up, and I know this from one of the Tate curators who came to visit us the other day, uh, Dr. Lena Fritsch, who happens to be German, living in London, and uh, she's going to Tel Aviv. Uh, in shortly, Simon, you might even know this, to see a show of, uh, at Tel Aviv University there's a gallery and, uh, uh, you know, the show's not up yet, but it's of the Japanese it's a co sort of comparison uh, as I understood it, of the Japanese experience of war about which they've kept quite quiet and the Jewish experience of war in the Holocaust about which they've been extremely vocal and how these two different cultures have dealt both via visual uh, communication and uh, spoken and written text with their um, you know, victimisation in a sense of war. I suppose you could argue the Japanese you know, weren't altogether victims but ultimately they became victims of course. Mm. So I think that was thank you for that Ruben. I think that was the most fascinating comment let alone question. Uh, we've got room for about two more two or three more at the most. 
Come on. <laughs> We've been nattering away. <laughs> oh, wait, hang on, hang on, darling. Yeah. A short statement. Mm. It's probably an ISIS drone mm. up ahead of us. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What to do? <laughs> US and others. And um, yeah, yeah. You've all been you've moment. all been marked. <laughs> so, so we should just acknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's what yeah. our way way does. He waves at the police. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's yeah. one tactic. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else with another with a with a question? Question. Uh, here we are, Rodney. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, my comment really was that there is increasing discussion that the young in Australia, the younger generation worldwide, do not feel that connected to or appreciate what happened. And uh, as an artist, Sean, you know, and as a young artist, you know, what what would you say to that, or how would you change that if necessary or need be? Um. Firstly, I like the uh, question because you've called me a young artist. <laughs> so I feel I feel great about whatever happens from this point onwards. But um, but so but just to understand further the question, you're saying that there's a there's a problem with younger people connecting to the legacy of say Australian service and involvement. Also history, I suppose, Rodney. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, it's tough because I I feel like um, it is still an ongoing sort of... uh, History hasn't stopped. That we... Like Brian mentioned ISIS, you know, every generation seems to have um, conflict uh, very much in in their vision. Mm. And um, I I thought as a student when I was um, studying that I would never see what, say, my father saw and that conscription would never be an issue, and it it wasn't. But, of course, the Gulf War was unfolding just as I was finishing high school, and that was a shock to me. It was kind of almost like my spirit um, uh, was dampened, thinking, wow, here's another conflict, Mm -hmm. just as I thought that we would never see something like that again. And, and again, you know, it's a a perpetuating thing. So I I feel like um, I can't really speak for um, people... Um, from, a, from a younger generation than than mine, but I but I also feel like, say through media and technology, they can receive information and they can um, source and research and they can even get helmet webcams from soldiers and um, uh, you know civilians um, who, who who are caught in the middle of some atrocious battles. So the information is available to mm. this generation more so than it was oh, no, uh, for me yeah. and um, mm. um, before me. So, yeah, I, 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 would, I would have to sort of defer to a younger person, even though I love thinking of myself as being. <laughs> One more question and we'll stop. And then Simon will do the honours and the book will be officially launched. Come on, one more Peter, you're the, the <laughs> a key person here. I just wanted to ask about... Um, oh, there's someone else, yeah. Um, like Magnum photographers, uh, McCullens talked about the heaviness he carries with him after a career of um, photographing war and whether this is a similar heaviness that you would feel after experiencing war. Um, 
and how your emotions have changed and what, where you might take that for the future. I know McCullen's looked back at the landscape and looked back at um, environmental issues and whether that's something that you question now you've, you've you know, ultimately you've been to war. Yeah, I think, I think, although I would have to kind of separate my experience from someone like Don McCullen because he's really given the better part of his life sure. to recording war where I had a very limited... Um, look into or using a photographic term, my aperture was very small. But what I, yeah, what I saw was devastating and it was um, e- extremely disturbing. Um, I, I just feel like I would need to make a separation there again um, as I did with the last question that I, I, I don't have the authority to even speak at the level of McCullen because he, he would really be suffering from um, post-traumatic stress disorder mm. at the level of, of most soldiers. Mm. At the level uh, of most soldiers. Yeah, and, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm not a combat soldier, so I, I, and I was very protected. Um, that's not to say that I didn't see it. I saw, I saw but I wasn't, um, as Don was actually in, involved. Yeah. And, um, and I do track his career, and I think it's amazing that he's, um, he's trying to heal. Mm. He's, he's involved in, mm. a, in a therapy um, where he's looking at the landscape and trying to hold on to nature, and uh, you know, it's an incredible thing. I mean, but he has a, a very uh, strong will, and I think um, anyway, it's a yeah, it's a very difficult um, thing for me to align myself with a war photographer like that. Uh, we're going to call it a day, but I, I just want to share something very personal with you. When I was a, a child, my father was in the uh, Second World War as a captain. And he served as a Jewish man, which was, you know, fairly unusual, in the South African army on the Western Front. He called it, in the Sahara Desert, basically, Rommel was coming down, and uh, the South African forces, through Jan Smuts, which, you know, is a long story, and I won't bore you with South African history, um, they went on the side of the Allies rather than the Germans. It could have gone the other way because the Afrikaners were so anti-English that it could have gone the other way and just through a couple of votes in Parliament under Jan Smuts, who himself was an Afrikaner, it went uh, the way of the Allies. So my dad was for two years in a trench in the Western Desert where they had one cup of water a day for shaving and officers had to shave and for drinking. And uh, there was a tiny little black and white photo that I used to pour over as a child amongst a few other photos like that where my dad was court-martialing somebody in the desert uh, who was a deserter who tried to run away. And um, he was, you know, the officer in charge and there was a desk in the middle of nowhere and uh, I asked him, you know, what were you doing? And he said, well, there was a deserter and we shot them after the court-martial. There was a trial, uh, you know, and we tried to make it as fair as possible, but if people ran away, they weren't allowed to run away. (laughs) And so we shot them. We shot our own people. And it's only as an adult that I realise the enormity of that. Mm. How did it feel to be standing there in the middle of the Sahara Desert condemning one of your own people in such danger to death? So, so many stories, huh? And so many ways into this. Now, uh, Simon, please come and sit in my seat and uh, you will be wired up. And... um, and launch this wonderful book that we have uh, helped bring to life.
Thank you. This evening, on the eve of Anzac Day, I'm overjoyed to be launching the international release of Double War, Sean Gladwell, Visual Culture, and the Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, published by one of the world's great publishers, Thames and Hudson, Australia. I would firstly like to give some thanks to a number of people and organizations here. To Gene Sherman and the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation for hosting this evening's conversation and the book launch, and for the support that they've given Sean Gladwell's work over many years. And I think, Gene, you did an amazing job with the conversation tonight. Thanks to the University of Newcastle, who supported Dr. Kit Muir's research during the writing of this tremendous book. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brendan Nilsson, Director of the Australian War Memorial, as well as Warwick Hayward, Curator of Art at the Australian War Memorial. I'm not sure if there are any Australian servicemen or women in the audience, certainly none in uniform, but I would like to acknowledge the tremendous effort our service people make, and certainly um, Sean um, really um, felt engaged with our tremendous service people. I'd also like to finally um, thank Peter Fay, who's in the audience. Peter really um, was instrumental in launching Sean's artistic career. So, um, Peter, thanks for coming up from Tasmania. And also, um, it's Peter's birthday today. So, <laughs> happy birthday. <clears throat> the author of Double War, Kit Mishamur, is an art historian, theorist, and critic based at the University of Newcastle. He publishes regularly in the online international magazine, The Conversation, and his online studio Crasher video series has a very strong following, and I'd encourage you all to look at it. He's published his research in many journals and art magazines over the last 25 years, and Double War is Kit's first published book. Double War is already attracting critical praise and attention. Ryan Johnson, head of art at the Australian War Memorial, says, Sean Gladwell is one of Australia's most prominent and successful contemporary artists, and the opportunity to consider his work in this degree of monographic detail is both welcome and long overdue. Vivian Jabri, Professor of International Politics in the Department of War Studies at King's College in London, has written that Double War is one of the most significant and original interpretations of the space and time of war. The book manages to capture the war as lived experience in all moments of crisis as well as its most routine aspects. Double War is the result of a five-year collaboration between Sean and Kit. Their association goes back much longer, almost two decades. They were both undergraduates in the painting studio at Sydney College of Arts in the early 1990s. And during his honorary year, Sean asked Kit to read over and give feedback on his honours paper. At the time, Sean offered Kit either $100 cash or one of his paintings. <laughs> Kit, Kit is still kicking himself for taking the money. <laughs> and, and not the artwork. Then in the late 1990s, they were both postgraduates at the University of New South Wales Art and Design, then COFA. At that point, Sean was engaged in his earliest experiments in video, and Kit was completing his PhD 
on the political conflicts surrounding abject art in America and Australia. Kit wrote the catalogue essay for Sean's first solo exhibition at Artspace in Sydney in 2000, as we heard earlier, and has written several other catalogue texts for Sean's work over the years. They most recently collaborated with Paul Patton and Dennis Swaites on Sean's first semiotech book, which is in the exhibition upstairs. Kit's research as an academic at the University of Newcastle focuses on the interpretation of conflict in art and the museum, as well as investigating art practice. Put simply, he looks at what artists actually do in their studios when they're developing their ideas long before the finished work is finally exhibited. So when Sean told Kit in 2009 that he'd just been commissioned as Australia's next official war artist, they both saw a great opportunity to work together on their most significant project to date, Double War. I well remember the day that Sean was advised of his commission and the trepidation of going into a war zone. And Sean talked to me at quite some length about that and his emotions. Sean's family have a tradition of military service with his dad serving in Vietnam, and Sean has great admiration of that. This book is the result of many interviews with Sean over the time that he was developing his official war artist work. It gives a context and insight into the thinking behind Sean's work and is the first sustained art theoretical investigation into one of Australia's most significant and contemporary artists. At a time when the double wars of Iraq and Afghanistan have now concluded and when the world is dealing with the aftermath, with the rise of ISIS and their high-quality stage-managed videos, this book comes at a moment in which it's timely to reflect on the paradigm shift that took place in our image culture during the War on Terror. The launch this evening of Double War also coincides with the eve of the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Gallipoli, a time when we consider the role of war in building Australia's image of itself as a great nation. Sean's work as an official war artist is now beginning to be known internationally. For example, featuring on the cover of this month's edition of the New York-based art magazine, Art News. Double War now provides some nuanced and critical context for this body of work, which will continue to raise questions about how images of war and conflict figure in our visual culture. It gives me great pleasure to officially launch this book this evening, Kip Misham's Muir, Double War, Sean Gladwell, Visual Culture and the Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Thank you.